Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what, what happens in the Bible is we get a story that's presented to us, and then truths or things we might call doctrines or even dogmas, things that we should teach, those things are derived from the story. And so there are a number of, of ideas that are current today that, that would not fit with the creation story, that do not fit with the creation story. And, and if we're going to be true to the story, we have to, be, we have to hold fast to these truths that are derived from the story. So we've got, a, we've got an overarching master story, then we've got truths and doctrines that are derived from that story. And another thing that, that comes along with the story are indications of what kinds of behaviors are appropriate. And, and in, in this story that, that uh, we're, we're open to here, we have a very explicit command that um, the man is not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and what's a, once a command like that is stated, well, we know, don't we, that the man is not to transgress that command. He's not to, that, that puts a boundary up around him, and he is not to trespass into the forbidden territory. So from, from the story, we derive our truths. We also derive our, we can call these ethics, our behavioral norms. And then also growing out of uh, the story, we're going to have symbolism and imagery. Things that, that um, because we know the story, we know what the symbolism, what the imagery communicates. So I just want to draw your attention to Genesis 3.14, if you're open there. And in this text, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. So uh, th there's an image here of this serpent now having dust for his food, and that imagery is going to be applied to people. Maybe you're familiar with Psalm 72, where David prays. He says um, in verse 9, in ver I'll read verses 8 and 9, David is praying for the future king from his line. And he says, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. So, so the, the imagery of the serpent having to eat the dust is now being applied to the enemies of the future king from David's line. And something else is happening too there. What's happening is the future king from David's line is being identified with the seed of the woman. And the enemies of the future king from David's line are being identified with the serpent. All of that is accomplished by means of the, of the imagery. And the imagery also serves to summarize and interpret the, the, the broader story. So, so we have this, this broad overarching story from which we derive truths and doctrines, from which we derive our ideas about, about how we ought to live, and, and from which the imagery is drawn. And then the, when the imagery is reused, we retell the story, we summarize the story, we interpret the story. And then, accompanying all this, um, you, have, you have worship. And what worship does, like what we just did when we sang, worship will retell the story 
and apply the story to us and then offer praise and thanks to God for our understanding of the story. So worship is really reinforcing our worldview. That's what we're trying to do when we worship. And I, I love it that Jason held up that hymnal. I thought there was one up here, but maybe he took it with him. I love it that he held up that hymnal because that hymnal is full of great songs that reinforce, retell, and apply the story of the Bible faithfully. So it's a, it's a, it's a great hymnal. And that's, the, that's what worship does. You know, that's what the Psalms are doing so often. The Psalms are rehearsing key aspects of the story and then retelling, summarizing, interpreting them, and also then applying them to the lives of the worshipers. So if, if you ask, how do you get a worldview? Well, you get an understanding of an overarching story that tells you uh, what's true in the world. And then you get, you get behaviors reinforced by that story. And then you get image, imagery and symbolism from that story. And then you get some kind of worship that accompanies that story. And where you have a group of people that embrace all this. And they think it's normal. This is, this is right. This is good. This is what we should do. Uh, this is what, is what is true about life. Well, now you've got a culture. And so boundering or, or bracketing uh, the story, the truths, the behaviors, the symbolism and Im imagery, you've got worship and culture. And, and it's all being reinforced because as we interact with one another, what we're doing, hopefully, ideally, what we're doing is sharpening one another in our own appropriation of the story, our own understanding of the story, and our own faithfulness to live it out in our lives. Now, with this, with this sort of... Um, preview in mind, what I'd like to do is, is drop into the beginnings of this story and contrast it with some other stories and, and hopefully um, set you up to see how the things that we see, these glorious uh, things that we see at the beginning of the Bible, um, really set us up to, to understand who we are, to interpret our own lives, and to interpret the rest of the Bible. But before we drop into Genesis 1.28, which is where we're going to start here in just a second. Actually, we'll start right before that in verse 27. Before we drop into that, I want to start by reminding you of, of maybe some other stories that you've heard. Um, so, that, you know, there, there are accounts of the creation of the world that, um, that, that claim that what happened was you had this infinitely dense particle that had no mass that began to expand so rapidly that it has to be regarded as an explosion. And then with, with no guiding hand, with no shaping intelligence, things just began to evolve. And eventually, after enough time passes, here we are. And, and I think the, the, most, the most startling uh, and, and hard to believe aspect of that story is the idea that there is no guiding intelligence, there is no moral authority in that story. And as a result, if that's your, if that's your worldview story, if that's your master story, well, you're not going to have ultimate moral claims. And yet, and yet, people that embrace this story, they make ultimate moral claims, don't they? They contradict their own story. And you're only going to have in that story evolving standards of decency. That's all you can have because you don't have an ultimate authority who has said, 
this is the world, this is the way I intended it to be, and this is the way you must live in my world, because there isn't a guiding intelligence. Um, Look at verse 27 of of Genesis chapter 1. We read here, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I want to tell you about a different story. Um, In this story, what you have is you had these, uh, these titanic, massive, hugely powerful gods. And um, one of these gods was trying to keep his descendants from overthrowing him. And, and ultimately, one of, his, one of his descendants was able to uh, overcome his father. And, um, and so eventually, um, you, you, you had these, these gods who inhabited Mount Olympus and um, Uh, these gods were not favorably disposed to humanity at all. And they didn't want humanity to have good things at all. And um, as a result of this, um, one of the things that the gods had, the gods had fire, but man, humanity, did not have fire. But one of those titans decided, I think it would be good for man to have fire. And maybe, maybe he had a grudge against some of those uh, Mount Olympus guys. I don't know exactly what all motivated uh, Prometheus, but you know the story. Prometheus, he stole fire from the gods and he gave it to man. Well, the gods were not happy about this. And so they decided to punish mankind. Do, do you remember the story? Do you know what Prometheus did? Promethe- uh, well, the gods that wanted to punish Prometheus, they decided to, to form a lovely maiden shape. And they all contributed their art to making this maiden shape uh, just, just fascinatingly, gloriously beautiful. And then they put into her a demon spirit. And then they gave to mankind woman as a punishment for having received from the gods fire. Now, if that's your origin story of where women came from, how do you think women are going to be treated in that culture? I think when we look at the way women are treated in the Greco-Roman world, well, it's kind of a natural way to treat women if that's where you... And, and really, I think that probably there's a lot of human wickedness, a lot of man, uh, masculine wickedness going on, and then they make up a story to justify their wicked treatment of women. Uh, maybe you've also heard these, these stories from the ancient Near East about how the gods don't like people. And this is, this is true of the Greco, Greco-Roman gods too. They don't like people. Uh, the, people make too much noise. Uh, they're, they're, they're a burden. They're, they're trouble. Um, look, at, look, at, look at how different Genesis 1.28 is. Look at what this verse says. God has just created man. And the first thing God does in verse 28, and God blessed them. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm, it's almost like I'm, I'm inclined to think that God is going to be unhappy with me. And may, maybe it stems from um, my expectation that my own dad was going to be frustrated with me. And, and I even see it in my kids. I can tell how they expect, they expect to hear me come down on them, not to find me happy about them. And so it, I can see the surprise on their faces when I, when I come into the room and, and you know, they're kind of like startled and they're like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. And then I'm happy to see them. It's a surprise to us because in our fallenness, we, we are often negative disposed to people and we expect others are going to be negatively disposed to us. And the Bible is telling us that the first thing God did was God blessed them. It, it's really 
I think it's surprising every time I see it. And God blessed them. God is happy about his creation. It's a good creation. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, we didn't read, well, we did read verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In a story, you're also going to have a setting. So I want to I, I give you some background into this setting in, that, that informs the story of the Bible. Um, so there, there, are, there are lots of ways that I could try to demonstrate this. I'm, I'm going to take you to a verse that I think spells it out. So if you will, keep a finger here in Genesis 1 and look with me over at Psalm 78, verse, verse 69. This is talking about God building the temple in Jerusalem. And it says in Psalm 78, 69, He built His sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. So listen to the comparison there. The sanctuary, the temple, is like the heavens and the earth. And then if you, if you take that information and you start co comparing it to other things that the Bible says, uh, maybe you remember that statement in Isaiah 66 where Isaiah says, uh, speaking, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? Now, what's the logic that informs that? The logic that informs that is in the Holy of Holies, you've got the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the footstool of the Lord, and then he's enthroned above the cherubim that are there in the Holy of Holies. And then the temple is the house. And what the Lord is saying there in Isaiah 66 is, no, I'm not contained by a little house. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool, which implies that the whole earth was intended to be what the Holy of Holies was, which suggests that the earth is a cosmic temple. The, the earth is a cosmic house that God has built for himself. And if you, if you, now what I would encourage you to do is don't just take my word for this. You should be a Berean. You should say, I'm going to test this against the evidence. I'm going to start reading the Bible, asking myself the question, does the Bible indicate that, that I should think of the heavens and the earth as a cosmic temple? And I think what you'll find are things like this all over the place. Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 29. Psalm I'm not going to read through every verse of this. I would love to do that. I, I just have to summarize it because I'm trying to stay on track here. I don't want to get distracted by the glories and the magnificence of Psalm 29. It's, it's a great <laughs> psalm. Uh, David is talking about all this disruption in the world. He's talking about the flood. And he, and he talks about how when the Lord gave the word, the waters of the flood, 29.5, the voice of the Lord, Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The image is of the wall of water of the flood rushing through and getting to the force of Lebanon and these mighty timbers dancing around like animals as this water just crushes through them. And then he goes on. Um, I'm going to skip down to verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. So he's talking about creation and strips the forests bare, and in his temple all cry glory. What David is saying is, as God gives the word and the floodwaters come, the whole earth glorifies God. That's what he's saying. 
but he descri- I, I submit to you that he describes the, temp- the earth as God's temple. I think this also informs Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think David is saying, I, I think David is saying, I'm going to be raised from the dead, and I'm going to inhabit the new heavens and new earth, the house of the Lord, the cosmic temple that God has built forever. We could go on and on like this. Let's go back to uh, Genesis 1. Here's why I'm telling you this. In the ancient Near East, um, idolaters, when they, would, when they would set up an idolatrous house for their gods, you know what they would put inside it? They would put a visible image of the, of the, of the God for whom they had built their temple. The temple symbolized the realm over which that God was Lord. The visible image of the God, whether it was a statue or a molten piece of metal or a carved piece of wood, whatever, it, it, it was meant to be a visible representation of the invisible God. And the statue was meant to bring to bear the authority and the character and the nature and the presence of the God who was Lord in that temple, who was Lord in that realm. God makes not a dead representation of himself. God makes a living, breathing, walking, talking, worshiping image of himself who is meant to bring to bear his character in his realm. This is, this is what it is for humanity, be, humanity to be in the image and likeness of God. And then God blessed them, verse 28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Why, is, why does God want them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it? Because he wants every corner of the cosmic temple to have his authority, his presence, and his character represented. What that verse is saying is what later verses will say like this. From the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, the name of the Lord will be praised. The, the, glor- the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. That's why God wants the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Because he wants his character and his presence represented throughout his creation. So it's, a, it's just a magnificent uh, starting point. And then let me just skip over to Genesis 2, 17 and draw your attention to the, the warning, the prohibition. The Lord says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, and, and let me skip you now to chapter 3, verse 4, where the serpent contradicts this. The serpent said to the woman. It's unfortunate the way the ESV renders this. The ESV renders in verse 17, it says, you shall surely die. I don't know why they do the shall versus will in verse 4. It's it's the exact same Hebrew phrase. The only difference in verse 4 is the insertion of the word not. So what Satan has done is he has taken the very words that God spoke and he has directly contradicted them. He's taken you will surely die and made it you will not surely die. It is the exact same phrase, word for word. And Satan doesn't come up with new strategies. The old strategy is the same strategy that he is pursuing down to this very day. Now, what's going to be normative for us? 
Are the scriptures going to be normative for us? Or is the attempt, the satanic attempt to contradict the word of God going to become what we think is normal? Which culture are we going to live in? That's the question that confronts us so often. Am I going to identify with the group of people for whom the Bible is normative? Or am I going to be swayed by those people who are believing the satanic lie and contradicting the very word of God? So many questions in life come down to that that simple issue. Am I going to go with the people that believe the Bible or am I going to be led away by those who are believing the contradictions of the Bible. Uh, there's a lot more we could say. I just want to skip now. Look, look, at, um, look at what happens when they eat the fruit. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And I, I trust that you know these chapters. 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I wonder if you've thought about what it would be to be naked and unashamed. It would mean that you're not afraid that anybody's going to look at you in a way that you don't want to be looked at. It would mean that you're not going to look at the other person in a way that they don't want to look at. You're not going to do that. You're not going to do anything that would make them feel uncomfortable. You're not going to take more than wants to be given. You're not going to presume upon their freedom. You're not going to do anything that would cause them fear. Naked and unashamed. Totally safe. No lust. No fear of, of I mean, it's, it's just a glorious, beautiful situation. And then they both instinctively know when they break faith with God. They both instinctively know They've not been faithful to God. That person, Adam, eat this Eve, Adam has not been faithful to God. He's not going to be faithful to me. And he knows she's not been faithful to God. She's not going to be faithful to me. They know instinctively. They don't have to be told. They, they immediately cover themselves. And we can understand what they do in verse 8. Because back in 2.17, they were told, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, the narrative is sophisticated, and it's operating at multiple levels. I would submit to you, at one level, they're already dead. They, they died spiritually, perhaps even before they ate the fruit. Why, why would I say something like that? Well, for one thing, Adam's role was to, Genesis 2.15, to work and keep the garden, or you could say to, um, to serve and protect the garden. Adam may have already failed by the fact that the serpent is in the garden. So I, I'm not sure exactly when the... I, I do know that Adam is the one who is called to account. So I don't know exactly when they died, but I think they're already spiritually dead. I think they're spiritually dead uh, by this time. And, and they're clearly alienated from one another because they're hiding from one another. And then in 3.8... They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Among other things, I think they're afraid we're about to die. We're about to die, and we're trying to escape. And this narrative is so instructive. It's so instructive because, because the, the, the behavior, the conduct of the Lord is so surprising. I mean, if this were me 
and these were my kids, I would probably come into the room, who ate of the fruit? You know, I would, it would be, there would be Im- immediate confrontation. Look at the Lord's conduct in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That's sort of an open-ended question. It's almost like an invitation. Would you like to give a report on what's been going on? Is there anything that you want to confess? Would you like to take this opportunity to repent of anything that you've done? Adam's not into repentance at this point. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord doesn't go to the deed. He doesn't go to the indictment. He says, who told you that you were naked? Would you like to tell me about what, what has happened? Would, would you like to come to me the way that a child can come to his father? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And, and Adam is still not ready to confess, so he shifts the blame. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, it's like, it's like he turns to Eve, and it's like he says to her, Eve, is there anything that you would like to confess? Would you like to repent? What is this that you have done? And she's shifting blame too. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so now the Lord, he's going to start um, responding. He's going to start uh, making statements of judgment. And these statements of judgment in Genesis 3, 14 through 19 are paradigmatic for the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible almost directly flows out of everything that we're about to read right here in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you. What's, what's remarkable here is that God doesn't say those words to the man or to the woman. And, and so already we're seeing the mercy of God. God is going to curse the serpent, but he's not going to curse Adam and he's not going to curse Eve. He says, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he tells the serpent, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, I would invite you to put yourself in Adam's place at this point. And I think Moses means for us to read the narrative this way. I think Moses intends for us to think through what was the prohibition. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Don't eat from the tree, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then we get to these words. I will put enmity between you and the woman. If I'm Adam and my brain is working fast enough, I might think something like this. Enmity? Enmity sounds like ongoing conflict. Is she not going to die today? I thought we were dying. It sounds like she's going to have an ongoing conflict with the serpent. And then the Lord says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And now if I'm Adam, I'm thinking... Okay, seed, I'm necessary for that. Sounds like I get to live too. He, the, the, the single male seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And now I'm thinking if I'm Adam, okay, we can survive a heel wound. But head wound sounds mortal for the serpent. This sounds like we're going to conquer. 
Now, if, if we ask ourselves, what is this business about the seed of the serpent, the, the offspring of the serpent? What's going on with that? Well, I think Moses is trying to teach us how to read. And, and the way that Moses is going to teach us to read is he's going to show us some people who act like the serpent and then who get talked to like the serpent got talked to. Okay, so um, look at Genesis 4. Um, 11, after Cain murders Abel, the Lord says to him, and now you are cursed from the ground. But in Hebrew, in Hebrew, it's the very same phrase that we had in 3.14, cursed are you above all livestock. So God cursed the serpent and then he curses Cain. And it's like Moses is going, you want to know what the seed of the serpent looked like? Look at Cain. And then a few chapters later, after um, after uh, Noah's son Ham shames his father, Noah says in Genesis 9.25, cursed be Canaan, the, the descendants of Ham. So now it's not just Cain who's identified with the serpent, it's also Canaan who's identified with the serpent. And then in Genesis 12.3, the Lord says to Abram, Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And at that point, we decide, okay, everybody that's opposed to Abraham, seed of the serpent. And, and, and you can just go through the rest of the Bible this way. And, and um, if we have time, we will do so. But uh, I want to I look um, back at Genesis 3 and continue in, in verse 16. Um, here's a biblical truth for you. Here's a biblical truth that I hope will help you to fight your sin and, and will, I hope will help you fight temptation. Temptation comes to us and says, if you will indulge in this sinful behavior, your life will get better. It will be pleasant for you. And the Bible is saying, actually, if you indulge in that sinful behavior, your life will get worse and everything about your life will get harder. Okay, so the woman, the woman was, was, commanded in Genesis 1.28 with the man to be fruitful and multiply with the man. So they, they're supposed to work together to, to multiply and to fill the earth with humanity. God doesn't take away that responsibility, but he does make it harder. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So this God-given thing that she's to do is made more difficult because of sin. And as you read through these early narratives, that's a point that is reiterated over and over again. When people sin, their lives get harder. When people sin, their lives, sin does not make our lives better. It's a lie. It's a lie of Satan that he says, you'll like this. You'll enjoy this. And the reality is, He's going to try to keep you there longer than you want to stay. He's going to take from you more than you want to give, and it's going to cost you more than you want to pay if you believe the lie. So the Lord says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, I would, I would uh, describe this as reproductive difficulty. And, um, and then it, when we read the next statement... The Lord says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So the other aspect uh, that, for which the woman, the other sort of God-given created task that the Lord gave to the woman to do was to help the man. Well, now her, she has this desire, but she's going to be ruled over 
And, and to, to get our heads around what kind of desire this is, look at Genesis 4, 7, where the Lord says to Cain at the end of that verse that sin's desire is for him, but he must rule over it. So the, these two phrases are really parallel, desire and then rule over. And I think we should interpret the woman, her desire for the man is the kind of desire that sin has for Cain. And sin wants to dictate Cain's actions. And the kind of response that the man is going to come back at the woman with is the kind of response that Cain needs to come back to sin with, which is zero tolerance. Um, no, you know, no quarter taken or given. And, and um, so the woman's two responsibilities, to be fruitful and multiply with the man and to help the man, it's like they're both distorted. And across the rest of the book of Genesis, we see the outworkings of this. Um, I think we see the outworkings of this in the fact that Sarah, the wife of Abraham, is barren. That's, that's difficulty in childbearing. I think we see the outworkings of the kind of relational things that are described here in Sarah's plan that she comes up with to bring about God's promise. Um, here, take my, my, wife, my uh, handmaiden, Hagar, and, and raise up children by her. Well, what's the result of that? Just makes their lives more difficult, doesn't it? Doesn't make Sarah happy. So Sarah comes up with this plan. She wants, it just makes a mess of everything. We also see it, I think, in what's going on in Sodom. You got reproductive perversions and distortions in what's going on in Sodom. And then you get even more of it with Lot's daughters. You remember what they did with their father, got him good and drunk. And then another, another instance where the women are trying to come up, come up with the plan and, and it's just a mess. It's awful. We could go on and on like this through the rest of the Bible, the way that, and, and here's what I would suggest in Genesis 3:15. We get enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which, which I think means that the people that are aligned with Satan are always going to be uh, at enmity with the people that are aligned with God. There's going to be an ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I think Genesis 3.16 indicates that things are always going to be hard between men and women, and things are always going to be difficult in the reproductive areas. It's... it's because sin has entered into the world, creation has been subjected to futility. I would go so far as to say every marital problem you've ever had stems from Genesis 3.16, which, which comes from human sin. So what we want to do is we want to think about our lives. We want to think about how we were created. We want to think about what's happened. And we want to understand who we are in the story. And then, and then you know, you've got to have realistic expectations. None of us... None of us was born innocent in the Garden of Eden, living naked and unashamed. None of us was born there. We all live after these horrific things have happened. We all live, as Romans 5.12 puts it, under the guilt of Adam's condemnation. So we're all affected by sin. And then to Adam, Genesis 3.17, the man's responsibility, created role, be fruitful and multiply with his wife, and work and keep the garden. Well, Genesis 3.17, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And, and here, the, the futility that is introduced, to create, introduced into creation is articulated. And you see this, this curse visited throughout the rest of the Bible. You see it in the famines on the land. You see it in... 
I, I, today we see it in hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis. The, the, the creation itself, the land itself has been cursed because of human sin. And then eventually, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So physical death will happen. But the hope that's been introduced by the promise about the seed of the woman, I think that hope is reflected in Genesis 3, verse 20. When the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. I think that's an act of faith for Adam to name the woman uh, Eve. And in Hebrew, the name Eve is Chava, which is very close to the word for life, which is Chaya. And so he, na- he gives her a name that sounds like life. And then he explains, because she'll be the mother of all living. And then look at how they respond when, um, when they have a child in 4.1. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's like she's saying, maybe this is going to be the seed of the woman. And then we know how that works out. Cain winds up seed of the serpent. He kills Abel. Look at how they respond at the birth of Seth in in uh, 425, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed to me another seed, offspring, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Okay, it can't be Cain. Seth's, or sorry, Abel's dead. Maybe Seth is the one. And then we see this line of descent in Genesis 5. And um, if, you're reading the Bi- if you're reading through the Bible, and you start hitting these genealogies and you're thinking to yourself, why are these people preserving these genealogies? Well, they're looking for the seed of the woman. And look at what they say about the birth of Noah in Genesis 5.29. And this is where we'll, we'll conclude after we, after we look at this. So God had said uh, to Adam in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then... When Lamech fathers Noah, he calls his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, cursed is the ground, exact same language, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil, in pain you shall eat of it, from the painful toil of our hands. So they're looking for the seed of the woman, and they're hoping when the seed of the woman rises up and bruises the head of the serpent, maybe the curses will be rolled back. Maybe the curse will be lifted from the land and this painful toil will come to an end. And I think that already they're hoping for something like a return to Edenic conditions, which as you continue through the Bible, that hope just gets elaborated upon in various ways until eventually you come to the new heavens and new earth, which is a new and better garden of Eden.